Welcome to Champions of Care, a Champion Chair podcast and your go-to resource for industry-leading insights regarding medical seating and their applications. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Champions of Care, a Champion Chair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We're going to cut right to the chase this time because we are continuing a conversation we've been having with Karen Tobin and Jen Worley. Jen Worley is the Director of Design Research and Karen Tobin is a Senior Interior Designer, both with BSA Life Structures. Today, they're continuing their conversations on how they blend their unique design perspectives, specifically data-driven perspectives, to create more holistic, more learning-focused, and more discovery-focused treatment spaces in healthcare organizations. So again, I'm joined by Jen Worley and Karen Tobin. Let's go ahead and continue with part two of our conversation on Champions of Care. When we look at the current state of healthcare spaces, it's hard to not bring up the current context of the COVID pandemic, which has changed a lot of the ways that healthcare providers do business. Um, you know, one example is limiting family members or guests, limiting the amount of procedures, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it has definitely changed day-to-day workflows. So now more than ever, the patient experience is highly relevant for reimbursement and patients, uh, you know, when they have access to healthcare, have choices as to where they spend their dollars. So, what design elements are key in helping bring patients back, especially in the sort of limited capacity that many um, healthcare spaces are having to operate under? Mm-hmm. So, if we think big picture for a moment, you know, this is a a crazy moment in time that no one expected to have. Although health systems work towards these things and have guardrails for these kinds of things, it, it was um, a very a moment where we were all um, caught in, in just a terrible event of circumstance. So um, one thing that we've been thinking about uh, at BSA, and it goes to kind of my background in psychology, if we want to get people back to the built environment and people back out, because that's what pe- we need people to do. We, we, we don't want people putting off standard health care. Um, we need people to come in and get checked um, so they don't get more ill. And, um, you know, people are scared to do that right now. And, and rightfully so. I can completely understand that. So um, how can we make space that supports people's sense of safety? And what are those environmental cues that will create an experience worth that risk of uncertainty. I mean, you know, putting your health first and going out and feeling safe that you get that exam. So, you know, one thing I always go back to is Maslow's hierarchy of need. And if you look at where we are, um, safety and security is just above air, food and water and shelter. So we're just right there in survival mode, a lot of us, um, which is really lending itself to having public health um, making its way as a mainstream um, discussion in in all markets, really. So, you know, thinking about how we use public health and a science-based approach to establish protocol around safety measures. You know, for example, you know, if you're gonna have hand washing, um, mask wearing and those kinds of things, 
But then the other part of that that I'm really interested in is that actual or perceived sense of control, which is really essential to an individual's well-being. Um, you know, we, we talk about choice and control and things like workplace. Um, but I think now more than ever, the, a people-based approach for choice and control is essential to getting people back to the built environment. And that really goes all down to the experience. Experience now matters more than ever. So what are those treatment centers? What are those experience offering that people can't refuse, that people say, okay, I feel safe. I want to come out and I'm going to get my exam and I'm going to come out and take care of myself. So it, you know, experience is really key at this moment. What about for treatment spaces specifically? What design elements are key in bringing patients back within the treatment space? And do you find that the treatment space influences this decision for patients one way or the other? Yes, no, why or why not? I think that idea of um, the perception of safety really does apply to the treatment spaces as well. And as Jen mentioned, uh, a lot of what we do as healthcare designers within those spaces, uh, we've already been doing. So it's really about infection control when it comes to material selection within the interior environment and also the furniture. Um, but uh, now it's about having people that are inhabiting those space really understand what's behind and what's behind those selections and what's behind those materials so that they understand, oh, they're safe or this is easy to clean, it's durable, um, you know, there's not going to be any microbes that are growing within the cracks of this space um, so that they feel comfortable and they can really focus on the reason why they're there, which is about healing and getting better. Yeah, I think that goes to the idea of, um, you know, Carrie, you, you mentioned about uh, that experience and, and confidence. And one thing that we're seeing is a big shift from healthcare to health in health systems. Um, they're looking to become lifelong wellness partners for their, their patients. Um, they want to, um, instead of just being thought of as needing when you're sick, you know, how can they make you well. And that really goes too, to the population health idea and how that's influencing healthcare as a whole. Um, but one thing we're seeing around that and trying to make people feel safe is um, we're seeing healthcare systems invite uh, the community to be part of the fabric of their campus. Um, and, you know, right now that's a little difficult to do, but we're working on a couple of master plans right now that really are um, inviting the uh, community in to their campus. So for example, one project we're working on, um, it's master planned out to have a fire station and a, um, a gym, a wellness gym for, for the community. It will have soccer fields. They're gonna partner with their local um, sports teams. Um, there are gonna be things on site like a childcare facility. So they're really, it's almost like a, a little mini neighborhood in, in and of itself. So you know, you're going to go to the campus for things other than just healthcare, which I think makes you feel more safe in general or more at ease because you, you know, you don't associate it with something that's so um, scary. And that's something that Karen and I, Karen and I try to battle every time when, with healthcare design is making it feel um, calming and helping people understand the, the paths in and the paths out and re removing any barrier to that stress. And I think now we're seeing people take it one step further 
with this invitation to the community into the site itself. So it becomes its own little neighborhood entity. Um, you know, this group is talking about having the Boys and Girls Club have um, different events in, in the gym. And then there's also opportunity for, for the Boy Scouts to do some things within the healing garden um, some, for some of their badging. So it's just been really interesting to see this evolution. And it's not just one project. I'm seeing it multiple projects. And I've heard other designers talk about that as well. So I'm really encouraged about that in the long run. Um, you know, other things that we're seeing around that, you know, bringing healthcare to where the people are. So if, if people are, are not feeling super comfortable with coming to the healthcare environment, you know, in the meantime, we're going to try to put these things in place to make them feel comfortable. Maybe there's a treatment um, truck that comes out to do testing or comes out to give some kind of a, um, you know, mammogram or things like that. So, you know, the flexibility and adaptability of care delivery is something that's been really interesting, um, which leads back to the idea that you have control and, and you can choose where you get your health care. And um, I think that healthcare systems making that investment to become a partner um, over time is going to be something that's really good for all of us um, because it really, you know, we don't want to just be treating the sick. We want to be talking about how to keep people healthy, which will be beneficial for everyone. If we look at design trends, market trends, uh, societal, cultural trends, whatever it might be, what are some other key elements that y'all would say are changing the landscape of healthcare design and in particular, the design of treatment spaces? And why would you say those factors are critical today? Yeah, we talked a lot about the control over the environment and how that's definitely becoming more prevalent, uh, especially this year. But uh, we've also seen some other factors that have really played into how design is developing and changing in these healthcare treatment environments. And one of which is this idea of convenience and um, the patient experience. So we're seeing more retail environments, having healthcare within them. You know, we're, we're hearing more about telehealth and seeing that more this year. So uh, as Jen mentioned, there's, there's got to be something within the built environment that is bringing people in and um, providing them that with the convenience that they're starting to expect. Um, so part of that within a treatment space might just be, um, you know, thinking about the furniture within an infusion center? And uh, are there places for me to plug in my phone so that I can keep working? Um, you know, or if I've got uh, to be there for a, a couple hours, is there an opportunity to um, have an iPad? And does that attach to a recliner? I know um, Champion Chair has some options like that. And um, just thinking about all those little things that might make it more convenient. Is there somewhere to store my stuff? Um, is there, there seating for a family member that might be able to come in? So thinking a lot about that convenience um, on a micro level as well as a macro level is something that we're seeing more prevalent. Another thing that we we are definitely seeing more of is just having that confidence in care. So again, how are you competing with some of these retail environments or telehealth? And and part of what we believe um, helps to deliver that confidence is the communication and education that is provided. So uh, how much 
Am I able to communicate with um, a caregiver? And are we able to get on the same eye level? I think that, that that's something that the furniture realm has really um, been able to help and, and facilitate as well, just getting recliners on the same level. So not all patients need to be sitting on a, uh, a table in an exam room um, where they feel like they're being talked up to or talked down to, but can they be on the same level and really have a conversation about the care so that they feel like they're being listened to and heard? Yeah, that's a great point, Karen. Um, uh, you know, the way an exam room might lay out, for example, um, you know, a lot of the times back in the day the the caregiver or the doctor or the nurse would have their back to the patient as they were talking to them. And um, I think furniture is doing a great job in changing that discussion, um, making it more mobile, making, you know, using a tablet or something so that, that you can look face to face with your physician and you're sitting at the same level. And if you look at even studies around that, you can see people's heart rate will will slow down and normalize a little bit. Because I, I personally have doctor phobia, but I will, you know, I feel more calm if somebody's sitting and looking at me instead of, you know, a doctor in a white coat standing up, towering over me, um, you know, making me, you know, I feel like I'm going to get some, uh, I'm just not on the same level, I guess. Or, um, you know, I think that ability to sit and be eye to eye um, is, is hugely important. Um, and it goes to the idea that people feel communicated to and they feel confident in their care. And one other thing that we're seeing most of our clients ask for is flexibility and adaptability. And Jen talked about this a little bit, but um, with changing technology and, you know, of course this year, um, just having to rapidly change the interior environment um, the the opportunity to be able to do that with flexible furniture that might be able to be mobile or moved around, uh, mobile wall systems, casework that is part of a furniture package um, as opposed to built in. All of those things we're seeing on a regular basis that our clients are asking for and needing just to to stay up with the times and, and be relevant. Yeah, exactly right, Karen. One thing with telehealth, there there's a lot of talk about how can you morph um, exam rooms into telehealth rooms and what does that look like? Um, you know, again, flexible furniture, um, having connections for all the appropriate technology needed. So um, I think the flexibility and adaptability and, and different levels of that we're going to see as a standard going forward. I want to spend some time talking on the specific um pieces of furniture that often populate these spaces as well. So treatment spaces such as oncology, biologics, rheumatology spaces, et cetera, et cetera, all have a clinical need in regards to patient seating. Can you give us some context on what those clinical needs are and how do you go about specifying furniture for these spaces? What's your process? So there are definitely some givens um, of clinical needs that we know when we are going to specify furniture within the environments. Uh, we know infection control is um, something that's going to be important. We know we're going to want um, crumb cleanouts, what we call them, so the crumbs don't get in the back of uh, recliners or, or chairs. And so the, these furniture pieces can be easy to clean and um, that they stand up to the cleaning solutions that are being used as well. So, um, you know, is it a vinyl that's being applied to it or, or silicone fabric? Uh, those are always integral to the beginning of the selection process and help us weed out um, 
what we can and can't use, um, you know, making sure that the furniture is non-porous, uh, so wood is used in the right type of context um, and in the right type of environments, things like that. But beyond that, um, we look to the client to help us in an alignment session to really determine what their specific goals and needs are for that particular space, because it's gonna be different for different people. Um, if comfort is what's most important for them, um, you know, we look to different options for recliners and seating that are gonna be more comfortable for the patients. Is it uh, heating or massage that they want to incorporate into the chairs for patients that are gonna be there for a long time? Um, is control what's gonna be most important for them? So, you know, there are some recliners that have options for control on both sides of the chairs um, and really looking at where those mechanisms are for a patient to be able to reach down and, and access um, the recline setting of a recliner. Um, fold down arms for patient transfer, is that something that's gonna be happening within the environment or, um, that they see happening within the space. So do we need an arm that's gonna be able to fold down so that patients can get in and out of the chair? A patient of size, uh, we're seeing that oftentimes we're, we're including that within our design. So um, chairs that can accommodate bariatric patients as well. So we'll work with the client to, to figure out their specific needs and um, then tailor the solution based on that. And then what we really like to do at that point is to have them do a sit test. And this is a great opportunity to incorporate that community as well, um, a patient and family advisory committee um, so that they can sit in the chairs and decide you know, what, what they think and really help to provide feedback that's gonna make the best selection for them. Yes, Karen, that's a great point. So part of that is we look to the Center for Health Design, evidence-based design, um, checklist for furniture. And so we'll actually have people score the pieces of furniture at, during the furniture show. Um, and we you know, collect all those uh, scores and, and create those, um, <clears throat> pardon me, create those uh, scores for the client to determine, you know, or to inform how we want to proceed next. So we look to the research to help us determine um, what factors we score for furniture. With so many projects that are now on BSA Life Structures plates, I'm sure um, you know there is a a constant pressure or need to deliver something unique and something uh, cutting edge to each of your clients. So, how do you aim to keep your perspectives fresh to always apply something unique to your healthcare and treatment space design from client project to client project? And how does data assist in this regard and in helping measure the science behind good design? Yeah, so we have, we look to our alignment sessions um, and our uh, post-occupancy evaluations. Um, that's part of our standard work. So we'll go in um, a 12, uh, nine to 12 months after a facility is open and do a post-occupancy evaluation. Um, and we typically use the Center for Health uh, Design guideline for that and, and determine what we did well and what we did not do well. So we'll do that um, pre-move and then post-move. We also look to the latest research on healthcare design. Um, another thing that we look to um, partnership with, uh, we have a partnership with Dr. Julie Zook um, from Texas Tech, and she helps us do literature reviews and um, coagulates the latest and greatest information on topics for us so we're relevant. 
and um, have the best knowledge at our fingertips as we go forward with projects. Um, so those are some data-related uh, data things that we do, but also striving uh, to be the most educated in our fields through certification. So um, we look to make sure that we have people that are well-certified, lead, EDAC, um, those kinds of things, in addition to um, our rep partners who are very important to us. They, they give us all the latest and greatest information around product design, um, and that's absolutely vital to what we do every day. I think the collaborative culture that we also have um, helps to keep things fresh and, and new perspectives and just challenging each other to think outside the box or, or try something new um, so that it really is a tailored, fresh approach to each individual project that we're working on. Yeah, our design director says never stand still. So, you know, we learn from our past and we take that with us going forward, but we always try to, to look at it through the eyes of the specific um, problem at hand. All right, Karen, Jen, I've got one main set of questions left for us today on the podcast. I want to wrap by looking at a specific project that BSA has guided to success, uh, more specifically the IU Health West Vertical Expansion Project. And the main reason I want to do this is to just ground some of the insights that we've had so far on the podcast and better understand how BSA's mission correlates in practice, especially this idea of data-driven design to guide a treatment space to success. So let's start by better understanding where the project started. Yeah, so first thing, it's a vertical expansion. So that in and of itself is a challenge. Um, we had worked on the project way back when it was first done. Um, so that was about 13 years ago. Um, and so it was really interesting to come back and, and look at the project through the eyes of today based on what we had done all those years ago. So it was a vertical expansion of um, inpatient unit, ICU, cath labs, um, and dialysis, as, as well as waiting spaces. So, you know, the challenges around that were really the footprint constraints um, because initially they thought they just wanted to recreate what they had on the lower floors. Um, we also had very large user group teams. Um, IU Health is part of the culture of engagement. So, um, you know, it was really great to have all the people involved. It was a little bit difficult to um, get consensus or to get um, corral the troops, so to speak. Um, and, and process challenges were, were around um, following the standard work, um, keeping that big user group on track. Um, and um, especially during the things we did, which were uh, cardboard city events. So, um, you know, having such a large team of people and getting them all on the same page was, was an interesting challenge, which was really enjoyable. I, I really enjoyed working with all of the users. That was something that for me was very fun. Um, and they made the events, it was called an integrated design event. They made the events very fun and, and themed. So one day you might wear a funny shirt or, you know, one day you dress um, as Hawaiian uh, inspired fair. And it was it was just really fun. Um, and you become a big team. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people standing around. And while the cardboard gets changed, that was um, kind of wasted time in the process. So we're looking up how we can get better about that going forward. So there were three primary approaches that the BSA team utilized to design their healthcare space. 
a lean process improvement, evidence-based design, and clinician engagement. And all of these helped create a space that really met the needs of IU health. So can y'all break down these three steps for us and why they were the primary approaches that BSA took to this project and their uh, eventual impact? So lean and clinician environment really fall into something that um, IU Health does around integrated facility design. And um, that comes from the lean process approach. So integrated facility design is an approach to healthcare design and construction that focuses on first defining um, and developing a safe and efficient process, and then using operational improvement to create the best outcome possible. So we looked at um, using a lean approach to design and construction, meaning we had partners on um, our group up front, including construction partners um, that could do price, real-time pricing for us as we were working through the cardboard mock-ups. Um, we did testing of alternatives um, with the cardboard events. Um, and we, you know, we had all the stakeholders together and we would run different scenario testing to make sure that that it was working or it wasn't working. So in the cardboard cities, we had um, actual equipment and furniture and things, um, and we did mock events. And a lot of times for me, it was fun because I got to be um, in the patient care or patient care side, or we always um, would run a track around um, the family side. So making sure that the family had a good experience during that track, as well as the patient, as well as the staff. So, you know, that has a higher upfront investment but in the long run, it, it reduces capital and operational costs because you get consensus up in, up in the beginning of the project. Um, you know, there's good things about that. People feel involved and they feel like they had a stake in the project. Um, the, the challenges around that would be for a vertical expansion, you know, there's a lot of constraints around how you go up in a building. And there's things called chases and there are things that, you know, oh, I really want to put a, a, a nice big room there, but you can't because there's a column that, that is required. So getting them to understand the guardrails around that um, was something that we worked on. And then, you know, in the cardboard city, making sure that we understood that we couldn't, you know, cut into a chase or, or things like that. Um, but all in all, it, it went really well. And how evidence-based design played into that, um, you know, we uh, didn't do a proper alignment session with this team um, because we had they had already had some things going along the path with their in integrated facility facility design, and they're trying to create this whole group within themselves that really is lean process improvement focused. So um, we were working through with that, and the way we brought evidence based design to the table was really around um, the staff satisfaction. So um, you know, we had this footprint. We couldn't change the footprint. We couldn't change the number of treatment rooms. Um, you know, it, it was what it was, but we had the opportunity to affect the staff spaces within those treatment areas. So um, we kept hearing that the staff felt very isolated. And we're like, okay, you know, let's try to get to the bottom of that. And what we were finding was um, this floor back in the day was um, designed with a couple of small care team stations for the group and then decentralized stations between each room as the standard. And the nursing staff, the way they were working today, they felt they very alone on the floor. They might not see another nurse for their shift. 
because they're just sitting at their um, decentralized station, looking in on the patients and charting there, and there wasn't much collaboration going on. They were also struggling with the idea of how to bring nurses up within the environment um, and giving them the support they needed. Um, because right now, you know, nationally, there's a, a need for more nurses and how do we keep good nurses and get them engaged and involved. Um, and the other concern was really around um, visibility from a nurse station to the patient room. So we looked at using something called space syntax. And um, that's something that we use with Dr. Julie Zook. Space syntax is a tool that analyzes spatial relationships and social behavior. And it uses a point cloud information or uses point cloud information that we can pull off the floor plans. So essentially it's a predictive measure that can tell us if this space is gonna feel more integrated or if it's gonna feel more separated. Um, so we use that to study our floor plan analysis and help guide which ways we were going. So for example, we um, looked at different locations for care team stations. We looked at different numbers of care team stations. And then we would have a space syntax run and that would tell you um, really how uh, how integrated or what kind of opportunity for collisions could occur along that pathway for additional information for nurses to share to feel more connected as a team um, the other thing that you can do with space syntax is called a view shed and that really measures the visibility from a point to another point so um, we had put glass on the doors in this rendition of the floor which was not done previously so they, you can actually sit at the nurse station, at care team station, and see into the patient room through the glass door, which has um, integral blinds for privacy for, for the patient, of course. Um, but that's something that we can use with the client as a predictive measure that, yes, this is going to be better than the other floor because of X, Y, Z. And it's not just our intuition or um, our, you know, that, that we've done these many projects like this, which plays into it. But I think something like this that you can show on paper that one version is better than another is really powerful. And um, it, it really helped the client feel more um, at ease through the decision-making, because um, it's, a, it's a huge deal for a client to, to make these calls around things and, and cost is always a concern and it's more expensive to put glass in the door than not. So how do you justify that cost? So um, we found that this exercise was really helpful for them. Um, and, and hopefully in the long run, it'll make the nurses feel more um, connected. So now instead of the, the all decentralized nurse stations, we have four um, centralized care team stations on the um, cores of every unit that can see into about an eight pod uh, group of rooms. And in addition to that, we have some back corridors that serve as, as kind of a touch-in space for a little huddle at, at the start of a shift. And um, they didn't have that before. It has some um, things around the whiteboards and, and they can post information there. And then there's also a huddle room for the, the nurses themselves. Uh, so they have these spaces that help support them um, emotionally along their, their path. Um, the, the care team stations also allowed um, for uh, other groups to come into the, the care team itself. So the, the physicians will be sitting in there with the nurses as well as additional staff like the social work team or palliative care anybody that might have to come up there's a seat available for um, 
the team as a whole. And, and, you know, right behind that area is an area that for more quiet focused work, but, you know, inviting them into that collaborative area, um, we're hoping will be a huge improvement for them going forward. So this is just wrapping up construction right now. So in about a year, we'll go in and, and we'll measure this post-occupancy. We'll, we'll measure the floor that below that didn't change and measure the new floors. And then we'll be able to tell, did we make a difference or not? Was that space syntax prediction correct? So um, this for me was really exciting because the staff involvement, um, getting the staff to understand the science behind how we design was also something that was really interesting. And it's it's more than just a, a, a pretty picture or a pretty unit um, or you know a pretty treatment space. And that's absolutely important. It has to feel welcoming and look nice and, and you know be functional for, for the group. But you know if we can take this extra step and have this you know almost proof of correlation, um, you know, you can actually prove things. Uh, evidence-based design is not like evidence-based medicine. Um, they're, they're very different. Um, but we look to correlate things such as um, satisfaction with the increased um, care team stations. And, and I'm really hopeful that that, um, that works out in the long run and that we can measure that. And, and one thing we're looking at too, you know, if we measure that and it, it wasn't successful, well then let's understand why. Um, so it's important for the field as a whole for, for us to look at ourselves critically um, and share that data with, with others. It's not you know to keep for ourselves. This is about going towards the greater good of healthcare as a whole and making treatment spaces better for everybody. So um, for me, that inspired solution mission right there is just proof in the pudding that um, you know we're on the right track. We're, we're really trying to help people. We're trying to to show that we that we make a difference, and that just wraps up all of my um, background into one. So um, very exciting for me personally. All right, y'all. I think that does it for our conversation today. So I just want to ask before we wrap, Karen, Jen, any final thoughts you want to leave our audience with on the importance of data-driven design for treatment spaces, especially in today's context of healthcare? I think just the idea that, you know, all firms, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, all firms start doing this. A lot of firms are already doing this. And in some respects, we're trying to catch up, right? Uh, we've had this long history of, of um, life structures metrics, uh, but it's gotten so, uh, automated and it's you know it's kind of a show to, to keep up with the technology and um we want to make sure that we're, we're choosing the right technologies and i and i just look forward to collaborating across teams to to see what kind of results we have from different projects and to, and to use that to learn as a group going forward um because ultimately we want the patients to to benefit from this um you know and it's our job to make sure that that's happening yeah, we want to improve the experience of the people that are within the spaces we design. So I think uh, by using data-driven metrics, uh, that will really help us get there and will just make us stronger in the end. 
All right, Jen Worley, Karen Tobin, thank you both so much for joining us today on this episode of Champions of Care. Again, we've been chatting with Jen Worley, Director of Design Research, and Karen Tobin, Senior Interior Designer with BSA Life Structures. And uh, Jen, Karen, if folks want to find out a little bit more about the work BSA Life Structures is doing, uh, what's y'all's website or some social media channels they should uh, follow and keep in touch with? Yes, they can find us at bsalifestructures.com. We are also on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn as well. So um, we'd love for you to follow us. And please reach out with any questions. Um, We'd love to collaborate. All right. Thanks again, y'all. Great getting to chat and looking forward to bringing you back on the podcast sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Champions of Care, a Champion Chair podcast. Make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for a full catalog of previous episodes, as well as notifications when we drop new ones. And make sure you're going to our website, championchair.com. Again, championchair.com for more information about our solutions and services and more content from Champion Chair. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.